be in John chapter 18 this morning. John chapter 18. We're going to read verses 1 to 3. John chapter 18, verses 1 to 3. And if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, please stand. Read verses 1 to 3 of John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. So we thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for our church. I'm so thankful for our church today, Lord. Thankful for all those that are here and for those that cannot come, Lord. We pray for those as well. Lord, please be with us this morning. Please be with this message, Lord. Please help it be what you'd have us to have this morning, Lord. I know I'm, I'm very excited about the message you gave us this week, Lord. Please bless it and use it this morning. Please be with me. Please help me speak the words you want me to say, Lord. Please flow that message through me. If there's things you want me to add, please help me to add those, Lord. If there's things you want me to miss or not say, Lord, please help me not see those in my notes, Lord. This gives a good service, a good message this morning, Lord. Please bless your word. Let me pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. I've been looking forward to being here this morning. I couldn't be here Wednesday, but I'm looking forward to being here this morning. I'm I'm excited. I love our church. I just love our church. I love everybody that's here. I, I love those that couldn't make it. I, I, I just love our church. I think the Lord has really blessed us, really blessed us. And I love the spirit, love how we're a family. I love that. I love how we're a family. I always that, that song always runs through my mind a little as much when God is in it. I, I'm thankful for that. I'm very thankful for what the Lord is doing. So we're in John chapter 18 this morning, and we're in a three-week series. We're John 18 this morning, John 19 next week, and then John 20 the week after. And I've just titled this series, The Just for the Unjust. The Just for the Unjust. And we get that from 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also hath once, once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So that's just our series title. The title for our message this morning is Four Witnesses in Darkness. Four Witnesses in Darkness. It's kind of a play on words. Yes, it was dark for these witnesses, but that's not really what I'm talking about, the darkness I'm talking about. But, but four witnesses in darkness. I'm excited about the message the Lord gave us for this morning. I don't think I've ever heard this chapter preached quite this way before. So I'm excited how the Lord gave me that that gave me the message and gave me the direction of taking the message. So John chapter 18, what happened here in John chapters 18 through 20, what happened is the just or the perfect son of God suffered for our sins, not his. He suffered for our sins. He was put to death for our sins, for my sins. He went through all that so he might bring us to God, 1 Peter 3.18, if we accept that free gift of salvation. And 1 Peter 3.18 also tells us that he did not stay dead. Death did not get the victory over him. Death did not get the victory over the just. No, the just was quickened by the Spirit, we are told in 1 Peter 3.18. The just rose again the third day, triumphant over the grave triumphant over death, and triumphant over the devil. Now in April, about this time that Jesus crossed from Jerusalem to Gethsemane, the Kidron became a roaring stream. It was run south into the valley of Hinnon. 
And by the way, Miss Janice, you got me so curious about Zechariah. I've been studying that, so we might have we, we might have, and Hinnon is in Zechariah, so we might we might have we might have a, a future study on that. So anyway, now back to our message this morning. Uh, the, the roaring stream came running south into the valley of Hinnon, and at Passover, it was we we were told that that stream would often run red with the lamb's blood. It would be red, and was striking divide between the city and the wealthy mountain gardens to the east. To an olive grove in one of those gardens, Jesus retired with his disciples, awaiting the arrest that would signal the events of that dark night. Now, four people occupied John's report in chapter 18. Four people who saw Christ in the darkness the night before his crucifixion. And we're going to look at those four witnesses in darkness this morning. But first, I'm going to uh, retell an account of a modern-day tragedy I believe I've mentioned this or told this in part before, but it's about facing death from friends, uh, our so-called friends. May 27, 1999, Daryl Scott, father of two victims of the Columbine High School shooting in Littleton, Colorado, testified before the subcommittee on crime of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, Scott talked about his loss and how amazed he was in the days following the tragedy that people pointed fingers at all kinds of groups trying to fix blame. But Scott believed the attitudes that gave birth to that Columbine massacre rested in the vacuum of the school itself long before the tragedy occurred. He saw the secularism of much contemporary public education as a breeding ground for the kind of chaos that took the life of his daughter. And he wrote a poem about it. He wrote this, Your laws ignore our deepest needs. Your words are empty air. You've stripped away our heritage. You've outlawed simple prayer. Now gunshots fill our classrooms and our precious children die. You seek for answers everywhere and ask the question, why? You regulate restrictive laws through legislative greed, and yet you fail to understand that God is what we need. God is what we need. Tragedies like that force us to face reality that death is part of life, and that death can, in fact, come at the hands of someone we would call a friend or perhaps at one time called a friend. We could face lots of hurt. Uh, some of the greatest hurt we can ever have in our life would be inflicted by what we would thought were friends or those that we loved. And Jesus faced that similar thing here in John chapter 18. Uh, he mentioned this, John 15, 13 and 15, he said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Talking to the disciples, ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. And those verses are some sweet verses. His followers were his disciples' friends. Now here in John chapter 18, Jesus was denied by Peter, a friend. He was betrayed by Judas, a so-called friend. So he had the greatest hurt he ever experienced was at the hands of people he would call friends. So that shows us that some of the greatest hurt we can have in our life can be at the hands of friends or people that we dearly love can inflict some of the greatest hurt that we could ever feel. Now, east of the city of Jerusalem, one can see the Mount of Olives on which were located many elaborate gardens. And this is where Jesus took his disciples, his friends, anticipating that betrayal and arrest that would lead to the cross. So 
This brings us to witness number one, Malchus in the darkness of duty. So witness number one in the darkness is Malchus and the darkness of duty. The first witness we look at to these events in this chapter was Malchus. He was the servant of the high priest, a, a curious bystander. Uh, he became actively involved when, when Peter swung his sword with good courage and maybe poor aim. We don't know. Um, maybe Malchus ducked or maybe Peter just had poor aim. We're not, we're not sure. Uh, the Bible records no response by Malchus, but one can imagine an interesting supper conversation with his wife. You won't believe what happened to me today at work. You, you won't believe what happened to me today. So, But we know that Jesus healed that ear and told his, his disciples to stop that violent behavior. Uh, John 18, verse 3, Judas, then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Notice it was Jewish authorities that initiated Jesus' arrest. It wasn't the Romans. It was the Jewish authorities. One wonders at this stage, at this strange group, that went out to meet Jesus. At first, it looked like the usual religious antagonist or uniform guard. But the phrase we see there at the beginning of the verse, a band of men, indicates to us that it was a Roman group that was also in this advanced party. A band of men was what you'd call a certain amount of Roman troops. So the fact that Roman troops were there, as well as the temple police or the temple guard, implies that the Jewish authorities had already approached the Roman authorities and said, we plan on arresting Jesus. We think there may be trouble and we have some help. So the Romans sent this band of men with them when they went to arrest Jesus, but it was initiated by the Jewish authorities. So the crucifixion of Christ was initiated by Jewish authorities. And in fact, the Jews of that day claimed responsibility. Matthew twenty-seven twenty-five. then answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and on our children. They claimed responsibility. It was initiated by them. They claimed responsibility, but they did not control that night. Jesus was in control that night. Look at verses 4 to 9. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto him, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he. They went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Jesus is in control of this night. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you, I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the same might be fulfilled which he spake of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Jesus controlled the night. In this account, John also wants to see that Jesus controlled this night. We see evidence of that by noticing the reaction to the power of just his spoken name. Notice verses 5 to 6 again. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Boom. They all fall. That's amazing. That's amazing. He was not afraid of them. I'm sure they were afraid of him, but he was not afraid of them. And I'm sure they knew he was in control. He's letting us arrest him. He's letting us do this to him. But he's in control. He could wipe us out just like that. Just by saying his name, I am, they all fell back to the ground. So he was in control that night. But I want you to notice one condition Jesus gave them 
upon his arrest. Twice Jesus asked the same question. Twice he received the same answer. Jesus surrendered himself upon one condition, and that was the release of the 11 remaining disciples. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Verses 8 to 9. Jesus is always protecting his sheep. Even when he's getting arrested and taken to the cross, he's looking out for and protecting his sheep. There's so much prophecy in this chapter. We won't be able to touch it all. So many little things that John just kind of sneaks in there as an afterthought, but it's just so incredible. One commentator had these great thoughts on verses 8 to 9. It's a long quote, but I thought he explained it well. He wrote, And Jesus thus stepping to the front and shielding the disciples, By exposing himself, John sees a picture of the whole sacrifice and substitution of Christ. This figure of his master moving forward to meet swords and staves of the party remains indelibly stamped upon his mind as the symbol of Christ's whole relation to his people. That night in Gethsemane was to them all the hour and power of darkness, and in every subsequent hour of darkness, John and the rest see the same divine figure stepping to the front shielding them and taking upon himself all the responsibility. It is thus Christ would have us to think of him as our friend, our protector, watchful over our interests, alive to all that threatens our persons, interposing between us and every hostile event, stepping between us and the danger. Jesus stepped between them and he said, you can arrest me, but not them. Not them. It's about me. And that's stamped on their minds. And that for the rest of their ministry, they remember that night, I'm sure, crystal clear. They remember Jesus stepping to the front between this huge group of armed soldiers and protecting them and saying, you're not taking me until you let these guys go. That's amazing to me. Always loving his sheep. Always looking out for his sheep. Always protecting his sheep. And we're his sheep. That's a great mental picture to keep in our mind almost makes me tear up. So we're going to move on. Um, Now notice Peter's initial instinct, fight, not flight. You always hear that that, that fear, that that, that flee or fight instinct. Peter had the fight. He wanted the fight. Look at verses 10 to 11. And Simon Peter, having his sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. That's our witness we're looking at right now. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? At this point in the night, Peter displayed admirable courage and loyalty, but again, apparently poor aim. He was a fisherman by trade, not a swordsman. John did not uh, record the healing of the year, but this is recorded for us in Luke. Now this um, this scene right here, uh, back a few years ago we, in Tucson, we have, I forget what the name of it is, but they, they we acted out the whole scene of the crucifixion, and Christmas and everything, they acted it out. And then they have these these different scenes. You go to different rooms of the church or different locations. You act out different scenes. Well, I was in this scene. You know, never guess who I played. I played Judas. And at the time, I was the church treasurer. And I, and I played Judas. I thought they thought that was kind of funny when they assigned Judas to me. But, Pete, but, but Michael is one of those that drew the sword. And so we were both in the scene together, so I remember that. So it was 
So we, we put, this is the scene we acted out right here. So I, I think of that. I think of Michael trying to chop the guy's ear off and stuff. So it was, it was, it was neat, but quite the scene, quite the scene. So these verses, I want to take a moment and just see what these verses teach us. First notice, Jesus did not condemn Peter for having a sword for self-defense or for the defense of loved ones. He just told Peter to put the sword up, that the cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink it? So the Bible supports us arming ourselves for self-defense, but also cautions us to use such force only when necessary and appropriate. Jesus did not condemn Peter for having a sword or even using it. He just said, put it up, now is not the time. So the Bible uh, supports us arming ourselves for self-defense, but cautions us to use such force only when necessary and appropriate. And second, these verses show us that Jesus was determined to do the will of the Father. This could have been a way of escape. Perhaps Peter and the other disciples could have fought them off somehow or, or stalled long enough to let Jesus run away and escape. But Jesus was determined to do the will of God, always do the will of God, uh, whether that meant personal harm, personal sacrifice, whatever that meant. He was always determined to do the will of the Father, and we should be the same. We should be the same. When serving the Lord gets tough, don't look for the way of escape. Don't look for the off-ramp. Do what Jesus did. Be determined to follow the will of God in spite of personal sacrifice, in spite of personal pain, in spite of frustration, in spite of any and all difficulties. When serving the Lord gets hard, don't look for the way of escape. Instead, redouble our commitment to the Lord and watch how he can use you or use us. Now, this message, I'm excited about the message the Lord gave us this morning. I believe that we're going to look at four different witnesses. I believe all of us can find something in one of these witnesses that we can relate to. I believe the Lord really gave us a message that can, that can reach all of us. Maybe only one witness or one part of one witness touches you. I believe this message is for all of us. I, I want. I want more than just us for to hear this message. If you if you can somehow share it somehow with others, I believe it's a very important message for all Christians to hear. But these witnesses, I believe we all can have at least part of that. We can identify ourselves, notice at least something in these witnesses that apply to us. So now let's notice the darkness of duty. We said Malchus is witness number one, and he's witness to the darkness of duty. So let's look at the darkness of duty. Malchus was party to this arrest. I'm sure he had heard of Jesus. He took part in this arrest. It was his duty. After all, he was a soldier of Rome. It was his duty. It was his duty. But there can be darkness in duty. There can be darkness in duty when, it, when that leads us to do things that are right. But we're doing these right things out of wrong motives. We're doing right things out of that duty instead of doing right things out of love for the Father and His Son. We need to make sure we're always doing those right things for the Lord for the right reasons, not just out of duty. We can get busy doing things for the Lord. I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to do that. But are we doing those things for the right reasons? Or are we doing those things just, well, that's just what I'm supposed to do? We need to make sure we're doing those things for the right reasons for the Lord. There can also be darkness and duty when our duty leads us to do things that are wrong. We feel loyalty, perhaps, to our job or perhaps to our boss. He directs us to do things we know are maybe a little questionable and ethically wise. Or perhaps we're directed to lie to make the company and or the ministry to look good. I've seen that happen before. There's a darkness to that kind of duty. It's never right to do wrong 
to do right. You need to be careful about the darkness of duty. Be careful to always do those things that are right because they're right, because we're motivated to do those things that are right out of love, out of adoration for the Lord and His Son. You need to be careful not to do our duty when our duty leads us to do those things that are wrong, those things that are unethical, for it is never right again to do wrong, to do right. So there can be a darkness to duty. So now let's look at witness number two. Peter in the darkness of fear and discouragement. Peter in the darkness of fear and discouragement. Second person who dominates this chapter is Peter, who was warming himself at the fire built by Jesus' enemies. And the predicted denial now took shape at this confused, as this confused and frightened disciple offered the wrong answers for the wrong reasons. Let's look at verses 12 to 14. Then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Note that the garden contingent did not take Jesus to the high priest. They took him to Annas, father-in-law of the high priest. Why would they do this? Well, Annas had previously been high priest from AD 6 to 15. Then the Romans removed him from being high priest, and they gave him to the high priest duties to four different sons of Caiaphas, I mean, excuse me, of Annas, and eventually to his son-in-law. And then Caiaphas served, was serving as high priest in that position when Jesus was crucified. Well, many of the Jews still thought of Annas as the high priest, and so they would often call him that or even act like he was still the high priest and bypass Caiaphas. But Caiaphas was the official high priest at this time, but notice they took him to Annas first. Now notice Annas in verse 14. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people, verse 14. Caiaphas, without knowing it, was giving a very prophetical statement right there. Uh, He was talking about the substitutionary atonement or the substitutionary vicarious atonement. It's good that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas, without knowing it, was giving prophecy. John eleven forty nine to 50 is where we find this. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all. They were considered that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. He said one man should die. It was expedient. He's given some prophecy, but he didn't mean it that way. He said maybe we should put this Jesus to death. One man, one man should die. For the whole people, but it was prophetic in a totally different way than Caiaphas meant it. But Caiaphas denied Jesus was the Messiah. So let's look at the setting of Peter's denials. If you look with me to verses 15 to 16. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple is known unto the high priest, and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without, then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door and brought Peter in. So the military, religious intruders had dismissed the 11 disciples, let them go as Jesus asked, but Peter and this other disciple followed their Lord and his captors. Most people believe this other disciple was John because he had family ties to the priesthood. He actually had a kind of a family relation to the high priest family. So he had, he had some influence. Even though he was one of Jesus' disciples, he could get them in the door. So they believe this was John that was doing this. But you notice Peter was in the wrong place with the wrong people. Look at verses 17 to 18. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art thou also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. And the servants and officers stood there 
who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Peter could have answered the question and walked on. Peter answered the question and went and stood with them and warmed himself. Peter was with the wrong people. Peter was with the wrong was in the wrong place with the wrong people. They were at the door, asked what appears to be just a rhetorical question. Aren't thou one of them? No, I'm not. He could have walked off, and that would have been the end of it. But Peter responded, but he not only responded, he walked over and joined the crowd and warmed himself by the fire with the enemies of the Lord. Peter had now joined that group of the Lord's enemies, warming himself around the same fire. He was becoming familiar with inserting himself into the wrong crowd. This was the last place that night one might would think a disciple of Jesus would be. But there was Peter, warming himself by the fire with the enemies of the Lord. You notice Peter was rapidly, and with intention, it seems, backsliding. He was rapidly backsliding. So now let's consider those denials of Peter. The first one we, we read already was in verse 17. And he says, I am not. He says, aren't that one of this man's disciples? He says, I am not. But let's get, now jump down to verse 25 to 27. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. He said, therefore, unto him, art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. So that's the second denial. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, saith, did not, did not I see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately the cock crew. So it's three denials. Now notice how the first two questions were, were kind of easy questions. Art not thou also one of his, this man's disciples? Verse 17. And then verse 25. Art not thou also one of his disciples? Just kind of off the cuff, kind of easier questions. But now notice how the third one got a lot more personal. Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Now we have that eyewitness saying, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Now he's being placed with Jesus in verse 26. Here Peter is with the wrong crowd, warming himself by a fire. He's in the wrong place with the wrong people. Peter heard the same kind of question as he gave the same exact answer two previous times. Now this third question, the heat increased. Someone said that Peter's ministry could be defined in three stages, at the fire, under fire, and then on fire. I think that describes him very well. At the fire, under fire, and on fire. And this third time, a relative of the servant who Peter had wounded, a relative of Malchus, our first witness. This, this is getting personal. This is getting too specific for Peter's comfort. Peter may have felt his personal life in jeopardy. Oh, well, now they know I was with him. They let me go. Maybe, it's, maybe they're going to arrest me now. This was getting intense. He, he was feeling the pressure of his association with Jesus. Will they ever stop asking this question? A potential eyewitness placed him with Jesus. Now, now he's been identified with Jesus to this worldly sinful crowd. He's now been identified with Jesus. This is getting very intense for Peter. He's backsliding rapidly. We know in a different place that it says he, he cursed. And now this very discouraged Peter, this very rapidly backsliding Peter, this very fearful Peter, this third question comes, did not I see thee in the garden with him? Verse 26. For the third time, Peter denied Christ, and the prophetic rooster began to crow. Peter then denied again, and immediately to cock crew, verse 27. And Jesus had previously stated that in John 13, 38 to Peter, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? 
Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Now, can you imagine when Peter heard that and it clicked how horrible he felt, how convicted he felt, how discouraged he felt, how defeated he felt, how much fear I disappointed the Lord, how discouraged he was. You know, when we are fearful about something, fearful about how this problem or situation will work out, fearful about repercussions, fearful about things not working out the way we're we're praying they will work out, you know, it could cause us to get very discouraged. That's the state Peter was in. That fear can cause us maybe to get get depressed, but this does not need to be so. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Once we let that fear lead to discouragement, that's where Peter was at here, that could lead us to do all sorts of things we previously thought we would never do. Peter never thought he would deny Christ or even curse and deny Christ that very night. If you, you No, I will not. I will not do that. And he did it. If we let that fear lead to that deep discouragement, it could lead us to do all kinds of things we never thought we'd be capable of doing. It may lead us to give up on living for the Lord. It may lead us to not to no longer trust his word. It may lead us to do something like Peter did, deny him. Now, this darkness and fear, discouragement, that we saw here in Peter in John chapter 18, can be played out in so many different ways in our life or the life of loved ones. Uh, Psalm 34, 4 says, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. When we get to that state, we need to seek the Lord. We need to seek the Lord. And we also need to be on guard for this. Uh, Put a hedge of protection around us. There's different ways we can do that. One way to do that is to stay faithful to our Bible study. Stay faithful. Be in the Word. Stay faithful to our prayer life. Mean that praying without ceasing. Stay faithful in our prayer life. Stay faithful to our church attendance. Faithfully hide God's word in our heart so the Holy Spirit can bring it to our minds when we are fearful and need encouragement. Those verses we've hidden in our minds, maybe it's been years. Maybe it was when I was a 10-year-old little boy. I was required to memorize a verse for something. Maybe I'm 40, almost 50, and I get discouraged about something. And that verse I hadn't even rehearsed or even gone over in years that I memorized when I was a 10-year-old little boy can be just the verse I need. And because I memorized it, the Holy Spirit can immediately throw up my mind and encourage me and help me get through that moment. We need to be hiding the Lord's words in our hearts so the Holy Spirit can use those at a later time. Now, we all will get fearful from time to time. We all will get discouraged from time to time. That is why we must remember we must remember this, and I pointed out earlier, our problem, this is us. Remember who gets between that. Who stood between the disciples? Who stood between his friends from the problem? Jesus stands in between us. Nothing can get to us unless it goes through him first. He allows it. So he stands between us. He guards us. He gets between us and that fear, between us and that problem. It has to go through him to get to us. So let's quit looking at the fear. We're somehow bypassing Jesus, or we're just looking at the fear. Let's just look at Jesus. Just look at him. Let's just look at him. And now I look at the fear.
Let's look at him. Keep our eyes on him. Peter was looking at all these armed soldiers. He was looking at all these fearful things. He got his eyes off of Jesus. And look where it led him so quickly in one night. Let's quit looking at the fearful things. And let's look at Jesus and get that encouragement from him. Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And I wonder if Peter had that verse memorized. I thought of that. Be strong of good courage, Peter. Not be afraid of them. Fear not. The Lord thy God, he is with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. I don't know if he had that memorized or not, but I think it would have been great if he did. Be strong of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them, Peter. Don't be afraid of them. I'm with you. I'm with you. Now let's move on to witness number three. That's Annas. And we're going to look at the darkness of self-importance and self-righteousness. Witness number three is Annas. And we're going to look at the darkness of self-importance and self-righteousness. Look at verses 19 to 24. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple where the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. But I have said unto them, Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So he's at Annas, in front of Annas at this point. Verses 19 to 24, Jesus asked two key questions while being questioned himself. Although John does not mention blasphemy in his paragraph, Annas had already tried to establish that uh, in, in a different passage. So Jesus asked the question, why askest thou me? In essence, Jesus was saying there, there is no need to question him. Uh, he had been open and honest. There were plenty of witnesses that could testify to everything Jesus said and taught. Also, Jesus was making a point of Jewish law here. Jewish law called for defense witnesses to be questioned first before the defendant. So Jesus not only say, why askest thou me? You're, you're doing this wrong. You're conducting this trial wrong. Uh, verses 22 to 24 contain quite the lesson for us. True Christianity is not a secret sect or a covert cult. He said everything's out in the open. Why ask me? You have plenty of witnesses. True Christianity is not a secret sect or a covert cult, but I see many things that say they're Christian have all kinds of secret things or, or, or very cultish involved with them. But Jesus says it's all right in the open. It's right there. It's right there. There's nothing secret, nothing hidden. Jewish law prohibited self-incrimination, a precursor to our Fifth Amendment. And if Annas or the high priest wanted to find out what Jesus had been teaching, Hundreds of people can verify his message, and they were required to ask them first. For his defense, Jesus received a blow on the face. Whether that was ordered or not, we do not know. The Lord called for the appropriate application of Jewish law. He says, call the defense witnesses first and ask the second question. After that, after he pointed out how they were doing this trial wrong, he said, why smitest thou me? Verse 23, Jesus is pointing out how this was a show of a trial. It was a fake trial. They were violating their own law and what they were doing, how they were conducting it. Uh, by doing so, they were guilty. Jesus pointed out, saying, he was demonstrating for them how you are the guilty ones. You've already violated your laws right now at this point. You're guilty. He was demonstrating to them, you are guilty of breaking the law. 
I'm innocent. I'm remaining ever innocent. So even in this show trial they put on for Jesus, the, the, the try to show him as guilty, they revealed themselves as guilty themselves, as, as lawbreakers. The, ju- the unjust were unjustly trying the just. So now it's notice the darkness of self-importance and self-righteousness. When we think too highly of ourselves, when we think we are more important than we are, when we think we are more righteous than we are, we cannot see our own sin, our, 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 our errors, our wrong actions. We just cannot see it. Annas had justified in his mind since he thought he was so important, since he thought he was so righteous. He, was convinced, he had convinced himself that the ends, the, these, the ends got to justify the means. He was basically demonstrating that he thought it was right to do wrong to get the right result. Self-importance and self-righteousness can blind us to what is truly right and what is truly wrong. Self-importance and self-righteousness can blind us to our own faults, to our own spiritual weaknesses, own spiritual needs. And self-importance and self-righteousness can blind us to our own need of salvation, our need of Jesus as our Savior. Think, I've got this together. I don't need that. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I've got this together. I don't need that. As a result... Self-importance and self-righteousness have sent many people to hell, um, have caused many people to fall, have led many people to justify their own wrong deeds, proving out the truth in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So we just need to do a self-examination. Ask the Lord, is any of that in me? Do I have that in myself? Am I humble enough, Lord? Can you help me root out that, that, that pride in my life? Humble me, Lord. Help me get those sins of self-importance, self-righteousness. If they're in me, help me to get those out of me. So now let's move on to our final witness. Witness number four, Pilate in the darkness of weakness and pragmatism. Pilate in the darkness of weakness and pragmatism. Look at verses 28 to 32. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to thee, up unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. By now it was early, early morning. Jesus had already been charged. With blasphemy, that's recorded in Mark chapter 14. But on this occasion, his enemies offered no charges against him. Instead, we have only one, we have one of the classic lines of the New Testament. Verse 30. If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to thee. What did he do? If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to thee. They couldn't come up with anything he did. They said, if he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him unto thee. In other words, He's just bad. He's really bad. You should kill him, though we can't really tell you why. He's just a bad person. You need to, you need to put him to death. If he were not a malefactor, I, I think they kind of said it like this, if he were not a malefactor, well, we've not sent him unto thee. Yeah, I could see the tone in their voice saying, take our word for it. You deserve to kill him. He, he deserves to be dead, but we can't really tell you why at this point anyway. I think that's very, very telling. They put on a show trial. He points out how they're guilty of breaking their own laws in the show trial. Then he's taking the pilot, and they can't even tell Pilate, give Pilate a reason to, to kill him. It's amazing. It's amazing. But we can we do notice seven different charges 
that the New Testament identifies against Christ. First one, he threatened to destroy the temple. That's Matthew 26, 61. Uh, John 18, 30, for rat, he's just bad. Trust us, he's a bad person. And number three, he perverts the nation, Luke 23, 2. He was accused of not paying his taxes in Luke 23, 2. Number five, they said he was a, just a revolutionary agitator, 23, 2. Number six, he makes himself king, same passage. And then in, in John chapter 19, the charge he claims to be the son of God. All this happened early in the morning, but Pilate could not grasp it. He couldn't get a Roman handle. His, his Roman mind could not understand why is this such a big deal? What's going on? It must have been a confusing situation for him, and his dialogue regarding who should carry out the execution seems like a political passing the buck between the Romans and the Jews until we read John's comment in verse 32, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. If the Jews had taken him, like Stephen, they would have stoned him to death. The Romans lifted him up. So again, one of those prophetic things in this chapter that John just kind of just slips in there. You can't even you don't really, really catch it if you realize it, think about it. It had to be the Romans because he said, I'll be lifted up. If been the Jews, he'd been down and they'd be stoning him to death. Now look at verses 33 to 35. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself? Or did others tell of thee? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? And again, I can just see that, that attitude when he said, Am I a Jew? I can see him getting short with the Lord. Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. Hast thou done? What hast thou done? So this incredulous Pilate could not imagine this broken and beaten man before him was the king of the Jews. But Jesus would not give him the satisfaction of claiming or disclaiming such an office. All this turned Pilate's disdain up another notch, and he just, he just thought this is just some, some, some religious bickering between these Jews whom he, he was supposed to be ruling. Now look at verses 36 to 37. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. For this then was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. These verses offer poignant truth from the lips of the Lord. All earthly kingdoms find their source with sinful humanity, but Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, so it needs no human defense. It's not of this world. So now let's look at that darkness of weakness and pragmatism. Look at verses 38 to 40. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? Another classic line in this passage. What is truth? And that's echoed even to today. What is truth? People are always trying to redefine what truth is. It's my truth. No. There's the truth. It's not your truth. So Pilate saith again unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate makes a pragmatic choice, or what he considered the choice of least resistance instead of the right choice. In these verses, Pilate, in effect, declares Jesus innocent. He says, I find in him no fault at all. 
Nevertheless, Pilate's weakness, his lack of backbone, leads him to appease the Jews. He let them select a prisoner of choice for release at the Passover. So let's do some self-reflection. Is weakness or a lack of moral strength causing us to make wrong decisions? Do we look for the easiest path, the path of least resistance, or the right path? If there are tough decisions we are needing to make or are facing in the future, let's ask the Lord to give us the moral fortitude, the strength, the mental, spiritual toughness, the mental, spiritual maturity. We need to make the biblically-based right decision. Let's not make a wrong decision because of spiritual weakness. Let's ask the Lord to give us the spiritual strength. We need to make only those right, biblically-based decisions through His strength. Now, Barabbas or Jesus? Pilate seemed to be thinking or saying he wants to be done with all this. So I'll give you a choice, Barabbas or Jesus. When they choose Barabbas, he goes along with it because that was a pragmatic choice. The easiest thing. I'll be done with this. Pragmatism mixed with weakness can cause us to make some truly catastrophic decisions in our life. Let's not make decisions based on what we think will work the best. Let's not make decisions based on spiritual weakness. Instead, let's make decisions based on prayer and faith. We did that in our church when we got this place. Decision that seemed like it would work the best is let's just keep renting the community center here or our library there. It's cheaper. Let's just keep making those pragmatic decisions. But no, we made a decision based on prayer and faith. Even though on paper, we couldn't pay for it. We took that leap of faith, that step of faith. And the Lord is blessed. Let's make decisions based on prayer and faith, not what we think will work the best. Let's make decisions what the Bible says is the right decision. And we can do that because the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. We do it through His strength, not our strength. We do it through His strength. So our conclusion. In this chapter, we see intelligent religious people warped by hate. And we see that in our day and time. We also see, and this is, this is fascinating to me, a fascinating play on the name of Barabbas. We know Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar means son of, son of Jonah. We know Abba means father. So Barabbas means son of the father, son of the father. Now, when they made those crosses, they were crucified, and they knew that day they were going to crucify those thieves, but one of them was Barabbas. So one cross was made for the son of the Father. Isn't that amazing? They didn't know how right they were. They made it for Barabbas, son of the Father. They didn't realize they were making it for the son of the Father. Barabbas, son of the Father, is scheduled to be crucified. Well, the son of the Father was crucified. Isn't that just amazing? God's word is just so amazing. Every little detail is amazing to me. And we didn't even scratch the surface on this chapter. It's just amazing to me what's in here. Amazing. So let's look at these, uh, ask us some personal questions about these four witnesses, and we'll close. Do we see ourselves in Malchus, perhaps, in our sense of duty causing us to do wrong things or make wrong decisions or act in the wrong way? Or is our sense of duty causing us to do right things out of wrong motives? Are we doing right things with the wrong heart? Do we see ourselves in Peter? Do we find ourselves in the darkness of fear and discouragement 
Is our fear causing us to sin? Is our discouragement causing us to drift from the Lord? Do we see ourselves in anus? Do we have that darkness of self-importance and self-righteousness? Do we think too highly of ourselves? Do we not see our own faults? Can we not admit faults and failures? Do we have that darkness of self-importance and self-righteousness in us? Or perhaps do we see ourselves in Pilate? Do we have the darkness of weakness mixed with pragmatism? Are we always making the easy choice instead of the right choice? This darkness, these different darknesses are no place for a Christian to dwell in or be in. But we tend to drift, drift towards darkness. Men love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. But our Father is the God of lights, or the Father of lights, James, James 1.17. So do we find ourselves in any of these darknesses today? Do we, can, can we see ourselves in any of these four witnesses? If so, let's confess that to the Lord. Let's repent of that. Let's turn to Him. Let's turn from that. Let's turn to Jesus, the only source of true strength. His light will help us through that darkness that we can find ourselves in. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We find ourselves in one of these witnesses of darkness. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. If we are walking in one of these witnesses of darkness in their past, we see something similar in that. Jesus said, we don't have to do that. God is the Father of lights. He says, you follow me. I am the light of life. We can have that light. So if we find ourselves in one of these darknesses this morning, we can look to the true light and get that right with the Lord. 